and what people got to understand about the sports world is that it's based on talent and it's based on performance. So you got to have the talent and you got to perform if you want to get the opportunity. And at the same time, it's political, just like anywhere else in life. All of these things are going to it. The good thing about sports is that it's more objective. It's the closest thing to a meritocracy you're going to get in life because it's based on performance because the scoreboard doesn't have an opinion. Welcome to the Sports Backdrop, a sports epreneur podcast. Sports got us together in the first place, but in this show, sports are the backdrop for way bigger conversations. This podcast exists because of the team at CADCM. At CADCM, we make content creation enjoyable. We are on a mission to help leaders create content, content that will improve lives, content to be proud of, content that fosters community. We know through firsthand experience how content brings people together, and we love helping make that happen. We produce podcasts, short-form videos, blog posts, and other written works, while also providing support in website development, social media management, and strategic planning. And we would be excited to help you. Visit cascm.com to learn more, or feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Dre, you produce a lot of content like everywhere. YouTube, podcasts, yeah. stories. I mean, you share stories about your playing career. I just read the story about Lithuania, like what went down there. Yeah. I mean, getting to the airport in a foreign country and no one's there to meet you. I was just like, man, All right. that takes a lot of uh, <laughs> faith, nerves. I don't know what it takes to like just continue that path and then like going to your place and looking at the bathroom. You're like, I don't know about this. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. But you're telling all these <laughs> stories and it's kind of cool that I could have a conversation with someone and I can learn about you by checking out all your content. And you obviously talk about like the power of content, why people should create content and create more content, man. But mm. how did you know, like when did it hit you to say, I need to share these stories because I think these could be useful for others. But I also think that you think it's very useful for you to share these stories. That's a good question, Eric. And it really started with, just when I saw the internet and I got a feel for what it was and I saw what it was going to be. And that was in the early 2000s yeah. and I was still in college. So I could see that it was a place where you could just take whatever you want to say and you could put it out. And this is blogging days. This is pre-social media. So this is when the only way you express yourself is you could have a website, you know, HTML, yeah. blogging. And I've always been a reader and a writer. So when I saw that, I said, oh, I want to have a a website where I could just take my ideas and my thoughts. Because I always felt like I had some thoughts or ideas that were not the normal way, but I felt like I could explain it. So if somebody could just hear it and see it, then they could understand where I was coming from. So I was always open to that. So then when what we now call social media started coming along, this is like mid to late 2000s before we were even using the phrase, I just started blogging and using Facebook or whatever, just sharing my experiences and just talking about the things that I was doing. And I saw that people were taken to that. And the blog is not really what got people to know me. People came to know me because of the basketball yeah. stuff on YouTube. I always wanted to have a place where I could just share my ideas and my experiences. And that's where it came from. Yeah. You said people were taking to it and they were getting the message. I have to imagine yeah. there was also people questioning it. Like, what are you doing? Why are you wasting your time? Like the haters of the world. Did you have that? Do you have experiences, whether it's family, friends, just people online? Like, did you go through that at all? A little bit. So I'm sure my parents probably were wondering you know, what the hell I was doing, you know, because I went to college, I had a degree. So they were probably wondering, hey, what are you doing? Why aren't you just going the traditional route? You know, because my parents didn't finish, or at least when I was a kid, my dad didn't go to college. My mom 
halted her college career because she had two young kids. Yeah. So they wanted us to just go to college, get jobs, you know, get a degree, get a good job, move on, which my sister pretty much did. I went a, a little bit different route. But the thing is, I was playing sports. So I had kind of, quote unquote, made it as an athlete playing overseas. So the stuff I was doing online was like supplemental. It wasn't the only thing that I was doing. So even though people were probably questioning it, like, what is this and where is this going? I was playing basketball was more the main thing. So it didn't get questioned as much just because of that. But had I not had the basketball piece in there, then it probably would have got questioned a little bit more. And I know there are people who they were doing the internet as their main thing. They probably had to deal with it more than I did. Got it. Got it. So you had the basketball going on. Yeah. Was there questions in regards to what you were doing with your basketball career? Oh, of course. From other people, like changing leagues? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because you talk a lot about the mindset. Mm -hmm. Well, it was even before I even started playing because I only played one year high school ball and I played Division three college ball. So anyone who knows the sports world knows that D3 is not a feeder source for professional athletes in any sport. So being the fact that I played D3, most people didn't think that coming from that background, I was even going to play my sport pro, especially basketball, which is a very, very hard sport to make it pro in because there are so many people who think they can play. And worldwide, there's yeah. only about four to 5,000 jobs total for an American-born male. A lot of people right. don't know that. 5,000 sounds like a lot, but it's not a lot. So, wow. and my first year graduated, after I graduated from college, I didn't get signed my first year out. So my first year after graduation, I was working at Foot Locker and Bally Total Fitness. Those are my first two jobs out of college for the whole year after graduation. So I didn't get my first contract until 15 months after I finished school. So during that year, while I still have this idea that I'm going to go play pro, I don't think there was anyone besides myself who thought that was actually going to happen. So absolutely, it wasn't so much the changing teams thing. It was the, do you even think you're going to get on a team yeah. in the first place? That was the real challenge. Are you even going to get on a team and play at all? So then once I got in, that kind of gave me a little bit of validation. But then uh, when you're playing pro overseas, and again, a lot of people don't know this, most of those contracts are year by year. You're not signing like a, a five-year contract like some guy in the NBA. It's a year-by-year -year deal. And if you have a couple of bad games in a row, it could be a week-by-week -week deal. They let you go whenever they feel like it. Yeah. So <laughs> those things right. and just the, the volatility of not knowing uh, when's that next contract going to be, where you're going to be playing. You know, are you going to have another contract after this one? Because when the season ends, you're like, all right, where am I playing next year? And some players, they had the luxury of knowing when this season ends, they know where they're playing next year. But not all players have that situation. I didn't have that situation. I always had to go and get the next contract after the last contract. So that's how my career kind of played out. So these two things between the internet and playing basketball, they actually kind of balanced off of each other. But each one was a little bit volatile. You don't know exactly how things are going to go. And it wasn't until maybe five or six years into both of them that I started to get a little bit more steadiness in each. Yeah. So I want to talk about just the game of college basketball and not just college basketball, but that time period, right? So the different leagues in college, D1, D2, D3. And like you said, like it's not a feeder into professional basketball coming from D3. Mm -hmm. But as we've learned, there's a lot of different ways to make it. Well, now you have sure. all these other leagues, right? And so you have Overtime Elite, you have the G League, you have the International, right? Which you played, which isn't just young people that could be older people, right? Like you could be playing against grown mm -hmm. men as a, you know, early, or as a teenager, really, as a late teenager, early 20 something. But 
since you've been involved in basketball, the game has changed and probably over the last few years has changed like exponentially, right? It's just like on another path now. And I'm curious as to how you see it from someone who has come at it from a non-traditional way of getting and playing professional basketball, like how you see the game of basketball evolving. Like when we watch March Madness, like it's got the excitement, it's got the drama, but the level of play is different because some of the top talent in that regards, if we're looking at it from the high level, is so spread out. I mean, the best player in the world is playing in France. The second best prospect, I should say, is playing on Team Ignite in the G League, right? So it's like the talent spread, the game's different. People are approaching it in different ways. Maybe people want to go to a smaller school, but now you have the NIL. So I'm kind of hitting on like all the different topics as it revolves around the game of basketball once you leave high school. Like when I say all that, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, you're right that things are more spread out and that players have on one side is more opportunity for players to have different options. And of course, you can make money now in different places. And even in college, you can get the NIL deals and you can make money from it as opposed to how it was 10, 20 years ago. At the same time, it makes it more challenging for the fan because it's not one place to watch the players and they're not all playing against each other. They're playing in different places. So you got to kind of look over here and then you'll look over there, see what's going on over there until, of course, it, hopefully they all make it to the NBA and then we get to see them play against each other there. I never really was a follower of college basketball even when I was playing it, honestly. I'm more a follower of the pros. Yep. I always followed NBA basketball more than I followed anything else, but you're 100% right that it is more spread out and hopefully they change the rule back to where players can just go straight to playing in the NBA if they want to. And if they end up failing, they fail, but they should have the opportunity to do that. I mean, you can pretty much do anything else before you turn 18. So why not let them play basketball? Right. So they might as well let those players just open it up and let those players go straight in and they either sink or they swim. That's how I see it. Yeah. Yeah. I see that as well. I guess the one thing that they're concerned about, and I don't know if they are, but you have a 35 year old, let's say who's playing in the league and you had mentioned there's only four or 5,000 spots in basketball for an American-born player worldwide, right? So in the NBA, it's, what is it, 400? And there's a number, whatever that number is, mm -hmm. 440 players, 440 spots. 450. 450. So if an 18-year-old joins the league, someone's losing a spot. But at the same time, like, that's life, right? Like, that's just how it works. I'm sorry, if the 18-year-old's better than you are at 35, right. like, you gotta go. So, I mean, is that, yeah, it sounds like that's exactly how you're thinking about it, too. It is business. I mean, that's the way yeah. business works. So the players union, who are the players who are already in the pro league, they would probably quietly push against letting the age limit thing get removed. Right. Because they understand that the older that they get, the closer they are to being that one guy who gets pushed out when the young guy comes in. But these players probably wouldn't go public and say something like that because they would get uh, shamed and ridiculed sure. for it. But that's exactly what they're doing because they're trying to protect their own self-interest. But in the interest of the overall, just in the interest of the business period, regardless of who the players are, it should be open that if someone wants to enter this job market and they are good enough to get a job offer, they should be able to get the job, period. So right. I don't right. think that there needs to be an age limit because all it does is it's basically creating a, giving the NCAA an extra year to give, to use that player and if the players don't want to do that, they're not going to go to class anyway, or all they're there for is to play basketball, then, I mean, the whole student-athlete concept is not really a real thing. If the player isn't interested in being a student, then they shouldn't be forced to be. Right. But that's why you have all these other options, like the overtime and the overseas, 
and the G League Ignite. And not everybody's going to be eligible to do that. But let's say there's a player who's not one of the top-ranked guys, and he doesn't want to go to school either. He thinks he's just good enough to play in the pros, or he just wants to go somewhere and work on his game for a year or two and then go pro. There should be an opportunity to do that. And yeah. I think more and more you're going to see more people creating those opportunities to where players can just forego the school part of it. They just want to get into their careers. I mean, every other career has this. Now you get out of high school, if you don't want to go to college, you don't have to go to classes. You can go to a trade school for two years, learn a trade, and then go and do that job full time. If that's how you want to live your life, you have a right to do that. Yeah. So I think there are entrepreneurs out there who are going to create more of those opportunities because why not? Yeah. It's just getting started. When we talk about Overtime Elite as an example, that's an entrepreneurship company. It's a content creation company. It's built off on the back right. end of social media and highlights and all these things. It's like, they're doing something. They're getting higher in talent. They're playing. You know, it's we can't go watch the game on CBS tonight or ESPN, but at the same time, like it's coming, right? Because they're going to be able to stream and it's going to be on YouTube. And kids today aren't sitting around watching the games, right? They're just not. They're watching mm -hmm. the highlights. They're watching clips. They're watching behind the scenes stuff. Right. They want it in a different way. And, and so... The whole world, the broadcasting, the media, mm. it all has to change because the habits are changing and they're changing fast. And so I don't think like Overtime Elite by any stretch is the last piece of this. Like there's gonna be more. And then, and now you have players that let's say a Durant and a LeBron leave the league, like talk about entrepreneurs, right? They're building something that's outside of basketball, but maybe using basketball. So like they could create their own league. Like maybe LeBron owns a team here, but he creates another league over there. I mean, who knows what's possible when it all comes down to it. And it's starting even earlier. So we can back up another step to the AAU world, right? So I know you're like working with kids all over the place of all ages and professionals and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But the AAU world is changing. I mean, they're having kids sign contracts. And then the AAU team owns like what they do. And, you know, they're covering all their costs from travel and tournaments and what have you. But like, you're signing up and you're committed to that team as a teenager, like not a late teenager. Now you're like a young teenager. And these AAU teams are, that's serious business mm -hmm. in many respects. Like what's been your experience in dealing with the AAU teams, the players, just the people around that community and what's going on there? If you've had that experience doing that. Well, personally, I never played AAU myself. Yeah. I wasn't really that good <laughs> when I was around that age. But once I started putting content on the internet, I would hear from a lot of either kids who were playing or parents of the kids. I hear from parents all the time of kids who are playing and they're trying to help guide their kid you know, along the way. And what people got to understand about the sports world is that it's, it's based on talent and it's based on performance. So you got to have the talent and you got to perform if you want to get the opportunity. And at the same time, it's political. It's just like anywhere else in life, all of these things are going to it. The good thing about sports is that it's more objective is the closest thing to a meritocracy you're going to get in life because it's based on performance because the scoreboard doesn't have an opinion, right? So that your ability to perform will help you kind of, it will sift you through everybody else over time. So someone like myself who didn't even play AAU and barely played in high school, I still had a chance because it wasn't based on anybody's opinion or me being cool with the right person. It was based on going out there and performing. But as far as the overall landscape of what's happening now, yeah, there are more opportunities for players to kind of explore and more ways for them to exploit in a positive way their talent, maybe make money from it, even if they never make it as a pro. Because basically, let's look at when I was putting basketball material on YouTube, that became a, a thing where now it's like a full-time job for some yep. people. That didn't exist before I started yep. doing it. And there are players who 
never climbed the ladder, right? The way that I grew up playing sports, Eric, was you played in the street, then you played for your local team, like the recreational league, then you played high school, college, pro. That was the hierarchy. That's the ladder you needed to climb. And whatever level of the ladder you got to, whatever rung on the ladder you got to, that was your status. And if you got to a higher rung than somebody else, you were better than them. That's how it worked. Now, a player can just completely ignore the ladder and just go straight to putting content on the internet and you can make a full-time living just putting content on the internet. You might not even play college. You may never make it to the pros. It's very hard to make it to the pros. You might not even play high school. Or if you play, you might sit on the bench. But you could be the most popular Instagrammer in school, even though you're not even on the basketball team in college. You know, So there are many other opportunities to kind of put yourself out there without climbing the traditional ladder, which is a good thing. At the same time, for someone who came up in the traditional way like myself, it's harder to compare player A to player B because not everybody's climbing the same ladder as it used to be. And as far as something you mentioned, well, let's say LeBron or Kevin Durant, something like that, players doing their own thing or creating their own businesses in terms of for basketball opportunities, I think they could easily do something like at that high school, that area between playing high school and playing in college or the area between high school and pro, I guess is what we're talking about here. They can create something like that is just as, as long as they can get the infrastructure right, because we know that uh, LeVar Ball tried that and it worked for a little bit until it didn't work. Right. So is that infrastructure has to be in place. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand about when you're looking at an athlete. Yeah, they make a lot of money. It takes more than just money to put a business together. You got to have an infrastructure. And when that infrastructure fails, then the business fails. And as an athlete, you don't have to make any infrastructure. You just show up to work. It's a job. But when you're an entrepreneur, you have to create all the structure of the business and somebody has to do that right in order for the business to work. Yeah. Like, let's say any player Mm. is their plane, like you just said, like they're an entrepreneur, they're running their own thing, they're running their own business, they're a person of one and they have their team, their agent or whatever. But basketball, you played professionally for nine years, like nine years is a long time to play professional sport, no matter what league you're in. Mm. But at the same time, nine years is only nine years. Like it's not even a decade when we think about our lifespan. And there's going to come a time for every athlete that they won't be playing that sport anymore, whether they weren't good enough, whether they got hurt, whether who knows what happened. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because when they start off at such a young age, especially let's talk about like the top talent, their high school, their AU, they're going to college, they're going to play in the G League, whatever they're going to do. These kids are being told and they're being coveted at such a young age. That is Mm -hmm. such a like, not a responsibility, but there's so much pressure that comes with it. But there's also like, how does a 14, a 17 year old deal with all that and like make it out on the other end and saying like, yeah, they have to have ego. They have to have confidence. They have to have those things. But like that career could be over tomorrow and they could have been one of the top rated players. And two years into the, the process of wherever step they're at, they might not be the guy anymore. Like you hear about it from soccer players overseas or footballers, let's say. And once they've hit five years in the system, let's say they're in the Arsenal Academy, if they're not moving up, they have no use for them anymore. They'll discard them. They'll actually send them to America, go play college soccer. They're coming over here as a 24-year-old goalkeeper, let's say from Germany, who's a really Mm. good player, but not good enough to play at their top club. So it's like, we got no use for them. No difference here in basketball. It's like, if you're three years or two years into your career and you're not the guy, they'll discard you. Like they don't really care. And then you've grown up in this process of like, you're the guy and everyone wanted you and they coveted you and they threw things at you and now it's over Mm -hmm. or it's not going the way it should have gone. I've heard about eighth graders being offered scholarships to Wake Forest University. And then what happens? They stopped growing. They didn't get good enough. Their peers got better. 
I've heard about kids who played on the James Harden AAU team and they were like better than Harden and all these guys. And by the time they got later, they weren't anything. They didn't even get recruited. And that was only like three years from their freshman year to their senior year in high school. And it's like, where is that guy? I don't know what he's doing. You know, so that guy comes out and he tells the story and I'm drawing a blank on what his name is, but he's got a story about that. And he's a motivational speaker and he can do all these things. But for every one of those guys, there's other people out there that it's really difficult to deal with being like the coolest kid to Mm -hmm. being like, nobody cares anymore. Like, what have you seen around that space? And because that exists in all all walks of life, but especially young athletes that are coming up and being coveted by grown-ass men. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm interested to know who that kid is that you're talking about because i'm not sure i'm familiar with that story i'll get his name and i'll message yeah you probably have met anyway go ahead yeah (laughs) i might have heard him yeah so anyway when it comes to that one of the good things for me was that i wasn't that highly recruited kid what it ended up being a good thing because i was thinking about well what else do i bring to the table in society if it's not going to be sports because there was very little guarantee or there was zero guarantee it was going to be sports and it for many times at many points, it would not be sports at all. So I had to make sure I had other skills developed in the process. But to answer your question, for the kids who are coming up now, they need the same thing. They need to know that, hey, even if you make it, quote unquote, if you have a 20-year career, you're 40 and it's over, right? And you still got another 40 years to live. So who are you and what do you bring to the table? So you look at someone like Kobe Bryant. When he retired, he talked about how, you know, when he started doing whatever his company was called after he retired and he's doing the little movies and the stuff for kids and things like that. Yeah. And one of the things that Kobe said was, hey, 20 years from now, if the most important thing about me is what I did for the Lakers and I failed. He said that because Kobe understood that just because I made it as an athlete doesn't mean that's all my life needs to be about. Is he, let's say he figured he would live another 40 years before he tragically passed. He knew he mm. wanted to bring other things to the table in life. The challenge for a lot of young athletes is that when they show promise from that early age that they don't have anyone around them telling them, hey, even if you make it, this isn't forever. Eventually, it's over. And then who are you and what are you? It's the last thing you want to be is the athlete who used to be an athlete, but now you're nobody. And your name doesn't carry the same gravitas that it used to. And you don't have anything interesting about you. There's nothing else that you bring to the table for society. So I think, honestly, where this goes back to, it goes back to upbringing. It goes back to the parents. This is on the parents that you had to let your child know, hey, even if you make it as an athlete, NFL, NBA, tennis, whatever, that one day you're going to be done playing this sport and you need to figure out who you are in the world and what you can bring to the table outside of just playing sports. Because when you're not playing anymore, the fact that you used to play matters less and less the further away you get from that last game. So Kobe Bryant understood that. And there are many athletes who do understand it, but there's a bunch of them who don't. And they never even think about it until the day after they're done playing and they wake up and say, oh, wait a minute, who am I now? Mm. And then they got to figure it out from zero. Yeah. So you want to kind of get started on this early on. I did some work with the NBA G League a few years back where I spoke to damn near every team in the league. And we were talking about this exact thing. Who are you when you're done playing ball? And you might want to start thinking about that now because not every player in the G League is going to make it to the NBA. Yeah. And a lot of players overseas at any level of the NBA, unless you're the superstar, LeBron, Kevin Durant type guy, 
when your career is over, you might be the last one to know that your career is over, right? The phone just stops ringing. All right, you don't get to choose. Like, <laughs> right, right. There are a few players who get to choose. Yeah. All right, this is my last season in the NBA, and they do the little tour, and they sign autographs, and they get gifts everywhere they go. Most players' careers don't end that way. Uh, most players' careers don't go like Kobe's, where they do the farewell tour, and you can be a, a below-average player. Kobe's last couple years in the NBA weren't very good. Most players don't get away with that. You can't do that. You start playing at that level, you're not playing. You're just unsigned. Yeah. So players have to understand that what you see on TV and what you see from the big name guys, that's not the normal experience. So you got to really be thinking about who are you when it's over because it might be over sooner than you think. Yeah. How did they, when you were speaking to these G League teams, how did these players, especially the younger ones, let's say, how did they respond to this conversation you were having with them? (laughs) Good question. They didn't (laughs) want to hear it. (laughs) Yeah. They didn't want to hear it for the most part. So the way it worked was, when I was working with the G League, it would usually be two people from the who worked for the NBA, and then it'd be two outside consultant type people. So it was me, and there was another woman who usually the same four people on each stop, or at least the same two of us, and then it'd be two people from the league. And she would talk about kind of who are your people, relationships, and life, and I would talk more on the business side, what are you going to do when basketball's over, thinking about that. And the younger players, for the most part, not all of them, but for the most part, because I asked the people from the league before our first engagement, I said, how do the players respond to something like this? Because mm. I knew how I would be thinking. Yeah. When I was 23, 24, you bring some guy in who's talking about what are you going to do when basketball's over? I'm like, wait, I just got started. I don't want to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah, talking about yeah. how I'm going to get to the <laughs> NBA right now. I don't care about what happens when it's over. And I asked her and she said, they just want to play basketball. <laughs> they just want to hoop. And they didn't even want to come to these meetings because these meetings are like, required. You have to go to the meeting if you're on the team. So these are yeah. things they're obligated to come to these events and they didn't really want to. So we would meet like at the team hotels, wherever the players were staying at while they're on their, on their trips. They didn't want to hear it. And I would say for every team, let's say there are 10 guys on each roster. There were usually about two guys on each team that wanted to talk about this. They would engage yeah. and they would talk about what they have going on. And I have this charitable foundation and I'm working on this. I'm working on that. Usually about two guys on every roster. The other eight they weren't rude. They would just sit there and say nothing. Right. They were just waiting for it to be over. Yeah. That's pretty much how it went. I mean, that's pretty much right on target with the 80-20 rule, right? You got 10 that's guys right. in there, two of them are, and you got probably two that are like totally disconnected. Like just, they probably didn't even show up. Yeah. Well, they had to show up, but they want to hear it. Yeah. So like you're resonating with someone and maybe it's two of them and maybe there's a third one that comes in that was like maybe on the fence. Yeah. How was it? Because you have this way of connecting with people. Like when, even when you reached out to be on the podcast, Mm-hmm. we get a lot of requests to be on. And once in a while, I've gotten videos and it, you, a lot of times it's a canned message. It's a whatever. Right. That wasn't what you did. So like you have this compelling way about you when you talk. I, I even listen to you when like you're going to be a guest on someone else's show. How should you show up? Mm-hmm. And you have this way about you to say, well, no, that's something worth listening to. Like my son could listen to that to better understand what is that experience like and how should I do this? And so you're coming across and maybe you're you're sharing a story. You're sharing a a tidbit, I don't know, that just pulls in that person, like that resonates with that player, that athlete, that whatever, that kid. Is it your story? Like, what is it that you think connects when someone's like, like even me, like what is it about you that's like, man, I'm drawn into what it is. Like, I want to learn more. I want to have an introspective on deeper conversation with you. Or I, you know what? Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure I wanted to show up. But now that I'm here and I've seen you and I've heard you speak a little bit, like I'm here mm-hmm. to stay and I want to hear what you have to talk about. Man, that's a great question. I think it's, a, it's an intangible thing, Eric, in just the way that 
just my ability to communicate. It is not what I say. And I was actually talking to a client of mine earlier today about this. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. It's the energy of how you say things and how you come across. And it's hard for some people when it comes to the internet, especially because when you're creating content for the internet, you're talking to a, a screen or you're talking to a camera lens. But there are humans on the other side of that lens. So I've always, as soon as I saw the internet back in the 90s, I knew it was for me. <laughs> I just had this ability to talk to an inanimate object as if I'm talking to an actual human being and there's no difference. So if you were talking to me in person, I'd be talking the same way that I'm talking right now. And a lot of people don't, that doesn't come naturally to them. They can get better at it, but they have to work at it. And mm-hmm. for people f- for whom it doesn't come naturally, they just have to put in a little bit more time. And same thing with you and I, there are certain things that don't come natural to us, but if we put in a little bit more time, we can get better at them. So I've always kind of had this innate understanding, especially once I saw the ability to, again, publish yourself, whether that's on video, on audio or written material, I'm able to be relatable through a written format or a microphone or a camera lens, even if it's not a human being in front of me. And then when people consume that, they get it. They're like, all right, I feel like I kind of know this guy, even though I never met him before. Yeah. That's uh, one of my superpowers. So that's why I utilize it. Yeah. As you should, as you should. I mean, it obviously works and and you're able to go into the depth of the conversation. You know, it's so there's small talk, right? And there's just, Mm -hmm. you know, you're staying up here and like, where are you going on vacation? And the basic questions like the weather, the whatever. And again, they serve a purpose in many regards because that could be a launching point for a conversation. Right. You know, no different than I always think sports is an incredible icebreaker, right? If you're wearing a t-shirt with, you know, you name it, a Utah Jazz t-shirt, we, we could talk about that. Right. Who knows what that leads to? We just talk about the NBA in general. You know, so those surface level things do matter in many regards, but it's the ability to go and have a deeper conversation. And no judgment. You know, that's why I'm always fascinated to find people to talk to like yourself to say, oh man, we could go in any direction right now. Like we could talk right. about all sorts of things and dive deep into it. And I love that. And I think the internet podcasting gives us that ability. And it also gives, like you had said, it gives us the ability to practice because you could go to your YouTube channel and I could go see you from eight years ago. Right. So you can see that path and just say, and it still has value. So like maybe, hey, maybe the production quality, it's not what it was. It's better, right? But there's this path. Like if you're going to do over 2,000 episodes on a podcast, plus all the guest appearances you've had, all the videos, all the Instagram posts, all the YouTube shorts, it's like, you're going to get better at communicating just by doing that. Like mm-hmm. you've used the word return a lot. And that return is, I get it, like new clients and money and sponsorships and partnerships and what have you. But it's also, how about being a better communicator? Like what's mm-hmm. the return on that? I don't know. Sometimes I think it's actually ridiculously high. And I don't even know if it's measurable in many regards. Mm-hmm. And then there's the leverage that you get from it. Like you and I aren't talking if I don't have a podcast today. That's a fact. Right. And, you know, maybe we run into each other in another part of life, but that's a part of it as well. But the communication aspect of it, like you had said before, people can get better at this. And I think you're probably, you would say you're living proof, like to write all those books, to do all those TED Talks, to the podcasts, the videos, the what have you, like over the years, I would imagine you think that you continue to become a better communicator. Like, have you seen it that way of the practice of doing all these things has made you a better communicator and a better business person and a better everything else? Absolutely. I mean, communication is one of the highest forms of value exchange. It's much higher than doing things physically because physically there's only so much. Physically, you're only being one place at a time, first of all. Secondly, depending on what you're doing physically, let's say, for example, playing a sport, 
there's a very short shelf life for being an athlete. Like if all I had to do as an athlete was playing the games, I might still be playing. But it's all the training and all the extra stuff that you have to do. That's why athletes are done by, most athletes are done within five years of starting their sport, let alone 10, 15, or 20 years. So your ability to communicate, first of all, you can reach a whole bunch of people at the same time. And secondly, usually people get better and better at communicating the older that they get. So as long as you have the ability to speak and think, you can communicate till you're 60, 70, 80 years old, as long as you are still you know, physically capable of talking. So that lasts a whole lot longer. You can reach a lot more people and you can have a lot more impact simply because you can reach a million people at once with your communication. You can't reach a million people with your muscles. Right? You can only be in one spot at a time, at least according to current technology. Right. So that ability to communicate is, and this is something that I emphasize to my audiences all the time, is that if you're going to work on any one skill, work on your ability to communicate. Because to communicate is how you build relationships. That's how you make friends. It's how you sell and market yourself so other people actually know that you exist. And whatever it is, even if your thing is physical, let's say you're a great singer. Well, singing is kind of communication. Let's say you're a great athlete, all right? And you want people to know you're a great athlete. You're trying to get a spot on the team. And myself is a perfect example of this. I didn't have a bunch of agents and teams beating down my door when I got out of college. I got my job playing professional basketball because of my ability to communicate. I realized that in order for me to separate myself from the other 10,000 guys who thought they were good enough to play professionally, I had to sell myself. And my ability to sell myself is how I got my first agent. That's how I got my, a lot of my jobs was selling myself, not because I was just head and shoulders better than all the other players out there. Or we already know from this little bit that we talked about that I was not that. It was my ability to communicate that did that. And then just building my brand over the years, and I tell people this all the time, Eric, I've created probably more individual pieces of unique content than anybody in the last 20 years. Maybe the closest person might be Seth Godin. Now, he writes an article every day, so he, he was yeah, out a little yeah, bit yeah. before That's me. Maybe, he might be the only person ahead of me. Yeah. And everybody else, they repurpose. So I'm not counting repurpose stuff, but original content, nobody else created more original content than me. And I say that to say, I've never had a piece of content go viral. Not one. Never. But I kept publishing. I've never stopped publishing. It hasn't been a day that's gone by since 2005 that I have not published something. Yeah. And that's how my communication skills improve. Yeah, I can see it. Well, I can see all the books. As we're talking, I can see all the books behind you. Mm -hmm. You obviously, in communication, like you even said, singing's a form of communication. Talking's obviously, there's all these different aspects. Writing is as well, obviously. That's right. And what is it about writing? You know, because writing a book, your stories, it's not easy. Right. And right. nothing that we're, you're doing or we're doing is easy. Mm -hmm. But sitting down to write and having the audacity to say, I'm going to put a book together, let alone 33 books. Like, what is it about the process of writing that you love so much? Well, I've always been a, a reader and a writer because my mother had my sister and I, my sister's a year older than me. So she had both of us reading from a very young age. So I've always been reading and books and stuff like that. So it was a very valuable tool that was instilled in me from a young age. And then when I saw the internet, the first thing that was available was blogging. Because this is before, you know, this is before we had cameras on our phones. So making videos was not so easy to do. You had to have an actual camera, but you could blog from anywhere. So that was the first thing I was doing online was writing. And I always like getting my message across in writing because I like to read. I know most people don't read, but I always like reading. So I like the ability to get my point across in writing. And as far as comparing the video to the written stuff is most people can consume video these days. So we all had to be in that space. Even if you write books, you got to do video to catch most of the audience. But 
the written word lasts longer than the video word. I mean, you mm-hmm. think about it. You write a book. Nobody ever asked, hey, when did this book come out? For the most part, people don't care. Right, somebody that hears about a book today, it could have came out 10 years ago, but it's new to them. And they don't care that it came out 10 years ago. But if somebody asks you for a video and you send them a link to a video that came out three months ago, they're like, that's old. You got a new video? <laughs> right, yeah. I would get that all the time from ballplayers. They say, well, you got a video on how to do this move. And I would send it to them. They say, well, that's old. You got a new one? Can you make a new one? I might. Well, if I made a new one, it'd be the exact same thing. Right. They say, yeah, it's on a new one. <laughs> but the written word has a much longer tail and a much longer shelf life. You can sense, again, somebody can be introduced to a book that has been out for years. They don't care that it's been out for years. But a video, it comes and goes. So with video content, you got to keep creating new stuff and you got to keep feeding the beast, so to speak. And that's kind of what social media is designed to do. They want you to keep creating content because that's how they keep people using their apps and that's how they make their money. It's a whole different conversation. Sure. That's their whole business model is we keep creating the content so that people keep watching it and then they monetize that time and that's how they make their money. So it's kind of designed to do exactly what it does. And the other thing about the written word is that it takes more time and thought to put your ideas in written word than it does to say them on video. Is anyone who's ever taken a video that you've done or anything you've said and transcribed it, you understand you can't just take that and put it out. Uh, you have to edit. There's a whole lot of editing you got to do to take the spoken word and get it into a written word. You have yep. to be much more concise. There's a ton of editing that you have to do to make that make sense. So the written word takes a lot more time, attention, energy, a lot more thought. And this is the reason why they say if you want to hide something from people, put it in a book because people don't read. Yeah. Yeah. I think (laughs) I don't want to be all like virtuous or something like that, Mm -hmm. whatever that word would be. But I think if there was more reading that were done, I think we'd be better off as a society. Absolutely. If people like took a break and read. And I mean, I read as a kid, I didn't like reading the books that were assigned to me in school. Right. But I did read some, but I didn't read a lot. And I didn't really take it seriously, probably until about 15 something years ago when mm-hmm. I really took it serious. Like you talk about Seth Godin, like just consume all of his books. And then, and then mm-hmm. it just leads you down a path and you're reading like Naval Ravikant and Nassim Taleb and David Goggins. And like, it just goes down this path of like, what can you consume? And now there's different ways to read, right? Like you can listen to books on Audible, right? It's amazing right. what exists out there. When you talk to say young athletes and they're not re- like, are you talking about those things? Like obviously you're talking about the game and you want to make their... <laughs> become a better ball handler, you know, better post moves and what have you, better mindset. Mm-hmm. Do you talk to them about this as well to say, because you can't play basketball for 17 hours a day. Like your body needs to rest. Right. And, you know, a lot of times people are streaming and that's fine, right? Netflix uh-huh. is amazing. Like the content that we can go get and what's interesting right. to you, but do you talk to them about reading books? And I don't care if it's fiction, nonfiction. I've gotten really into fiction again recently. My father had wrote a book and we helped publish that book. Okay. And so reading that book over and over again, was really cool because it got me into more fiction books and like the exotic, like what could be out there? Mm. Like you can create another world. And so just anyway, I'm going down this path, but like talking to kids about reading from your position of someone who's proven that this stuff works, like are you talking to them about that? Well, I would if they were interested <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for the most part, they're not. What you'll get is the adults around them want you to talk to them about that. But at the same time, when you're dealing with kids, you got to meet them where they're at. But overall, in terms of my business these days, I usually work with adults. And when I do talk to younger people, let's say they reach out to me, 
there will be some who reach out and they want to talk about those things. Like, hey, I'm thinking about what I can do in business because maybe they are looking at themselves and saying, you know what, maybe I'm not going to make it to the pro league in my sport. Or maybe I'm in the pro league, but I know I don't want to keep playing. But a lot of athletes, again, they have to have that reality smack them in the face rather than them deciding on their own. That's just Mm. how it is. Especially sports like football and basketball, it tends to be more prevalent than other sports. And that's just what I see. And those are the kind of people that I've been around. So as far as what are the other skills that you can bring to the table, that hasn't changed that much, Eric, since our youth. In that even back in the days, in the 90s, kids said, well, I'm going to make it as a basketball player or a football player. And the teacher says, well, hey, maybe you will, but it's a one in a million shot. So you should invest in these other skills because you might need them. And the kid doesn't really want to hear it. Because in that period of their lives, they're like, well, I'm going to make it. You're just old and you don't know. You never made it. You don't know. So I don't need to listen to you. And listen, that's and sometimes people got to have reality smack them in the face in order for them to accept it. And sometimes, depending on, again, how this person was brought up, they may be more open to that conversation. But that goes back to, as I said earlier, it goes back to what's happening at home. That goes back to the parents. Because by the time I'm talking to some kid who's 15 years old, if he hasn't been raised to even be open to that kind of conversation, nothing I say is going to get through Yeah. until reality smacks him upside his head. Then he'll be willing to listen. But at that point, he doesn't want to hear it. If he's not looking for it, he doesn't want to hear it. Now, if he's looking yeah. for it, then he's open to it. Yeah. That adversity that you're mentioning, it's like, you're right. A lot of times you have to go through it. I mean, it'd be great if we could just go listen to our mentors and just like take their word for it. And we don't have to live through it <laughs> exactly. because they just told us what to do. And, and sometimes I suppose you could do that. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's almost like you sitting, you talked about fitting, I don't know, 10 to 15 people in a van that are, you know, six, four and taller. Like, (laughs) how do you do that? But you have to live through that experience to be like, I don't want to do this again. Or working at the grocery store or working the night shift at a time. It's like, I would imagine, why would you stop creating content? Why would you stop having these conversations? Why would you stop working with your clients? Because you know what the other side could look like and you don't want to do that. And Mm -hmm. like reality did possibly hit you in the face. And that's why like we talked to our kids, like go work at a fast food restaurant, see what that's like, like go through that experience to continue to push yourself. Number one, you make money, you're working for someone else. And so you have to be responsible. You have to show up on time. You have to do these things and you're going to have bad days, but you still have to show up. And I think that teaches young people a lot of things. And maybe it teaches you that you don't want to do that when you grow up. And so what are you going to do about it now, Mm. right? You're going to read. Are you going to go to class? You're going to go to school. Are you going to work out whatever you want to do? You don't have to go to school. Like you said, there's so many options that exist, but it sounds like a lot of that adversity that you went through is why you are who you are right now. Mm -hmm. 100%. I got my first job when I was 15 years of age and I come from Philadelphia. So in the state of Pennsylvania, that was the minimum age you had to be in order to get a job. And back then you had to go to like a social security office and get some paperwork documents in order to get a job. And as soon as I turned 15, my parents were like, all right, look, we're taking care of food, clothing, shelter, anything else you want that's coming out of your pocket. Yeah. Your little weekend job money. So I was working at Pizza Hut at age 15 and my sister as well. So I had probably 20 jobs before I got my first job playing pro basketball. So I know what it's like to go to work every day. And my parents were not entrepreneurs. They were full-time employees. I mean, they did some entrepreneurial things, but they were not entrepreneurs in the mind. They were employees. And I watched them go to work every single day. So I took that same work ethic. And then my parents are also not athletes and not even over six feet tall. <laughs> They're probably like five, seven and five, eight. I'm six, four. Wow. And I just took that work ethic and what I saw them doing, the example that they set. And I applied that to playing sports, even though nobody taught me how to play. 
And then I took that same stuff. And once I learned some entrepreneurial things, I just happened to come across that material because, again, I'm a big reader. So I came across Robert Kiyosaki. I came across Brian Tracy and Jim Rohn and Zig Ziglar. <laughs> and when I started reading those guys in college, that planted the seed for entrepreneurship. When I, I saw the Internet, I combined it with the Internet, went and played basketball. Then I read you know, later on guys like Tim Ferriss. And they were all talking about entrepreneurship. So I was open to the idea because of what I had consumed. Again, so it goes back to being introduced to reading from a very young age. And that's how I ended up getting into entrepreneurship. But I also had the, the discipline and the work ethic of people who grew up in an era where you couldn't just become an entrepreneur tomorrow, right? Yeah. These days, you can do that. Yeah. Back in the 90s, the 80s, you know, our parents' era, you couldn't do that. You couldn't be an entrepreneur yeah. just because you wanted to. You didn't have any money. You didn't know anybody. You can't be an entrepreneur. These days, you could be an entrepreneur next week if you want to be. So I just happened to be in the right time and the right era and you know the right height when it comes to basketball. But then the business side of it, I just happened to come along at the right time and at the same time had to take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah. How did you come across these authors? You mentioned Tim Ferriss, you mentioned Seth Godin, Brian Tracy. Like, mm -hmm. when did that come to be? Is it just being on the internet and reading a bunch and all that kind of stuff? And people were recommending, you know, you should definitely check out these books if you have these interests. Yeah. How did you come across them to say, I'm diving into it? Cause I get what you're saying. Like, a lot of the same books I've read, and you just, next mm -hmm. thing you know, you're like just down the rabbit hole. Right. But how did you find them? No, it was not from the internet. So this is before the internet was the internet. So it existed, but it wasn't what it is yeah, now. Yeah, so yeah. in 2000, probably about 2002, I'm in college. So I was in college from 2000 to 2004. So 2002 is at the end of the spring semester. So everybody's about to go home for the summer. And there was a bulletin board posting. This is back when if you want to announce something, there was no internet. You had to put it on a bulletin board. <laughs> it said, do you want to make extra money this summer? No unlimited income potential. Rip off this number, call this number, and I'll tell you what the deal is. So I called the number. It was network marketing. All right. So I called the number. This guy says, I'm going to have a meeting in this building tomorrow. So I go to the meeting. Like three people come to the meeting, me and two other students. He introduces us to this concept of network marketing and the product. And it was a uh, legal insurance thing, uh, legal shield, prepaid legal. Yeah. You heard of that probably, right? Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> and he explained the concept of it and it sounded intriguing to me. I was like, all right, cool. And the guy, he actually disappeared. I don't know what happened to him. He disappeared. I followed <laughs> up with him. He, he disappeared. I get back home to Philadelphia, right? So I went to school in Altoona, Pennsylvania. So I don't know if you know the, the geographics. Where are you from, Eric? Of Western New York, Buffalo, New York. So, okay, so I'm in yeah, Altoona, yeah. Pennsylvania. It was like the middle of the state. Philadelphia is down the southeast. Yeah. Right. So I go back home to Philly, right? And I'm in my bedroom in my parents' house. And my mom is downstairs in the living room. And one of her friends, because my mom used to run a daycare, right? So the woman... One of the women whose child my mom used to watch came to the house and she's downstairs having a conversation with my mom. I can hear them talking, but I don't go down there because I don't, she's not there to talk to me. I don't care. They're talking and I hear this woman mention the same company. So she's having a one-on-one -on -one with my mom trying to pitch her the product. She's trying to sell her the program. So I interrupt the conversation. I come downstairs. She hadn't seen me since I was a kid, right? This woman. And I say, I heard you mention prepaid legal. Legal Shield, whatever it's called now. Yeah. And I say, well, look, this guy introduced me to that program on campus at school, but I don't know where he's at. But if you're doing it, I want to do it with you. She's like, all right, let's go. <laughs> and that's how I got into it. So yeah. I went to a few of the hotel meetings. And at the hotel meetings, they would always say after the meeting, hey, when you get out of here, outside of the room, there's a table and there are people selling books. And they kept using this phrase called personal development. And I never heard that phrase before, mm -hmm. Eric. And this is, I'm 21 years of age. And 
I was always into the, like the human psychology stuff, like how the brain works and how that leads to actions. But I never heard it you called personal development. But they would always say, go buy the personal development books, buy the books. And they would name drop those guys. The Tony mm. Robbins, Jim Rohn, Brian Tracy, Zig Ziglar, Robert Kiyosaki. So at this time, I'm a broke college kid. So I didn't buy any of the books. But when I got back to campus, I went on eBay. This is before Amazon was the thing. I went on eBay and I bought pirated copies of these books for like 99 yeah. cents, the Word documents. And that's where I read Napoleon Hill. That's where I read Robert Kiyosaki. So I'm reading 99 cent Word documents of these books. And that's how I got introduced to it. So when I read Robert Kiyosaki, I said, this is what I need to be doing. Like yeah. what this guy's talking about, this is what I need to be doing. And I knew I was going to play ball after college. But I said, after ball, I'm going to take what this guy's talking about. And that's what I'm going to do. Man. So that's how I got into it. Man, that's a good story. I think you talked about like when you come across these situations like prepaid legal or whatever it is or a bad job or a bad situation to where like, how do you turn that into a positive? Like mm. the fact that prepaid legal or legal shield, like you said, existed and maybe it, that wasn't the thing that was going to be anything. And maybe you're like, oh man, this like feels like almost like a scam. I don't, you know, however you felt about it, mm. it led you down the path to go and discover these books. That's right maybe without ever pulling that piece of paper off at college, you never come across it. And you know, maybe you do eventually you come across it because you had this thirst for this whatever knowledge that you were seeking. Mm. But it's amazing how like that situation led to something so great. Like, I think that's an amazing story to come across that. And it's kind of like you said, it's going to hit you across the face at some point. When is that going to be? I don't know. Right. But it did. And luckily for us and for you, it hit you at that time. Right. A few things with that is... First of all, this is something that I said to my audience just the other day. Like, you'll find anything you're looking for, mm. right? So I was in college. I have a business degree from Penn State, and I don't use anything that I got from my business degree in my business today. Not one thing. <laughs> yeah. And I tell people that all the time. I'm still glad I went to college because of the experience on the court, basketball, and my social experience. A lot of my best friends are people that I met in college, so I'm still glad that I did it. But at the same time, I was looking for something different because I was looking at my classmates my last couple of years in school. And I'm like, all right, these people are, you know, follow the rules, do what the teacher says, go get a job and live happily ever after. I'd already seen my parents doing that and they didn't seem too satisfied with their situations. They endured their situations. I said, I don't want to endure my situation. I want something better than that. So I was looking for something. I didn't know what I was looking for. I was looking for something. And then when I went to those, another thing about going to those hotel meetings for uh, network marketing, any company was that. The main thing that they do in those meetings is they introduce you to concepts of entrepreneurship that most people don't know. And that's the main benefit that I got from going to those meetings was that they start talking about entrepreneurship and they started saying, well, look, you see how most people do it this way, but instead you could do it this way. Well, this is what most people do. Here's another way of doing it. And they were just breaking all these beliefs. And again, I'm only 20, 21 years of age. I don't know anything, but they were, these beliefs had already been instilled in me from years of conditioning from school and from parents. They were breaking their beliefs and putting new ideas in my mind. I said, that makes sense. Maybe I won't use this vehicle, but it made sense to me. So that's when, when I read Kiyosaki and I read all these other guys, these entrepreneurs, I said, okay, now it's all coming together for me. So I was looking. So then when the internet came around, I said, okay, I could do it through the internet. And all of this stuff, every piece just came together at once. It's kind of like Steve Jobs said in that famous commencement speech, you can't really put the pieces together looking forward, you can only put it together looking backward, right? Mm. So looking backward, it all made sense how everything kind of worked the way that it was supposed to. Yeah. You have this, you probably heard the word talent stacking. Mm. 
you have the skill of basketball and you have the skill of communicating with people. You have this skill with business and podcasting and production and YouTube. And you take all of those things together and you become so unique in that process. Like the unique content's unique, but when you stack it with all your other interests and fascinations and just talents, like you said, there's no one else is doing it how you're doing it. And mm. that's just an example for someone else to use. I mean, they could have no interest at all in basketball. They can't even dribble or shoot a basketball, but they have something else that they're very good at and then stack it with all those other talents. It's like, man, the, you become so unique in that process and the internet allows us to have that. Like, mm. that's one thing that absolutely sticks out when I have this conversation with you and what I think about and choosing the different people we want to work with or, or how we can help them create content be like, wow, no, you can talk about all these different things because that's so unique. When you put all that together, it's like, I don't know anyone else who's doing it that way. Mm. Like even your videos, there was something I noticed. It was a drill and you're dribbling and you're showing someone like, do this every day and you'll become a better ball handler. And you're just doing it. It gets right into the video. You're dribbling. You're showing it. So I could do it. My kids can watch it. And professional athletes can do it. And it works. And then in the comments, it's interesting, is they like the fact that you just got right into it. You weren't overselling anything. Like you were just doing the work. Mm. And if there was a mistake in it, you just kept going. And you showed like, it's not going to be as clean as like a lot of these other people are putting this content out there to be, right? It's not perfect. Mm. I'm going to lose the ball. I'm going to make a mistake. I'm going to stop for a second. And it just keeps going. And people appreciated that. And they also talked about how they became a better ball handler as a result of following your drills. So like, mm. that's a uniqueness of like humility, honesty, right? Like raw content, you know, so much of like, you know, you look at politicians, it's all, you go on CNN or Fox or MSNBC, it's all contrived. It's all bits and pieces. It's mm. not... A conversation, which is like you said before, if we were to take this and take the text from our audio, like it's broken speech in many regards, but that's okay because that's audio. Right. But that's what you want to hear. Like, I want to hear the politician talk for an hour uninterrupted, unedited, mm -hmm. you know, unfiltered. Like, can they hold that conversation? And, and you're doing those things through these types of conversations, through your basketball drills and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's fascinating. I think it's a lot of times, I think it's just proof of concept for someone else, whether it's the athletes that you're working with to say, here it is. Like, again, you might have a totally different interest than I have, but this is the proof of concept. You can do these things. Like, you talk about no excuses, right? Like, mm. just go do it. Like, we could all list off a bunch of excuses as to why we could have stopped doing this thing a long time ago. 100%. And just yeah. continuing to show up and doing the work, being consistent. And the same things that I did in basketball, even before I made it in basketball, and to get into entrepreneurship and even players to this day, I still have players who will reach out to me or former players. They don't play anymore, but they say, hey, the stuff that you were talking about, I thought it was just for basketball, but I'm still applying it now. You know, I didn't make it in college. I didn't play pro, but I took that stuff from I was learning when I was in high school and I was watching you. And now I'm applying it as a grown man or a grown woman. So just make, knowing that people are understanding life principles and success principles yeah. for life that they just happen to learn from sports. Yeah. No, man, that's good stuff. I want to touch on two more things I want to hit on real quick. Mm. One is we started this conversation talking about basketball and college basketball and where the sport's going. Mm. So one thing that has changed drastically was since you started playing is the three-point shot. Is the yeah. game is totally changing. Steph Curry and Ray Allen, you know, with the heat and all that stuff he was doing. But how do you see the game? I remember when I played and I was not at that level, but they always wanted me to go inside, like take the ball to the hole. I'm like, no, I want to stay out here and shoot it, right? That I was good at. And nowadays, I think I would have been better off playing basketball today than then. But anyway, that said, 
how do you see the game of basketball today versus when you played? You know, there's a lot of old heads out there talking about like, that's always the case, right? I want to go back to the way it was. I want to be tough. Like when the Pistons and Bulls were playing, right. I mean, man, they were putting Scottie Pippen in the seventh row of the seats. I mean, there's just a different game then. Yeah. And sometimes they didn't even call it a foul, but the game has changed. The three-point shot has changed. Analytics have changed the game. Like, how do you see it today versus maybe before? Yeah, well, that era, the earlier era, the era that I grew up playing in was you no know, late 90s going into the 2000s. It was definitely more physical. It was more go to the basket, you know, finish at the rim, attack the basket. Now it's don't go to the rim, shoot a three-pointer because it's a higher percentage shot, whatever it happens to be. I was always the type of player who didn't want to have any holes in my game. So I wanted to be able to do it all. So if you want me to shoot a three, I'll shoot threes. You want me to go to the hole and try to dunk on somebody? I'll do that as well take the physical punishment and get to the foul line, do it that way. I would have a player, let's say my son, he's not even a year old yet, but I would have him, if he plays, he's going to be able to do everything. So you need to shoot threes, shoot threes, but you also got to be able to go to that rim and you got to be able to play defense and grab rebounds and pass. So yes, the game has evolved over time. I think players are as talented as they've ever been, but the rules have been, not necessarily the rules, but the way the game is officiated, let's just say, has changed a lot where you got some of the stuff that these players do. I'm looking at it like, wait a minute, that's legal? Like, if I knew I could do take that many steps when I was playing, I would score <laughs> a lot more points. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, how is that even legal? That's okay? I didn't know. Yeah. And sometimes I'm on Twitter and I'm talking to people about that. Like, man, if that's legal, I would have scored like twice as many points as I scored. Yeah. <laughs> so it's changed in that way in that they've relaxed it. And this is, Specifically in the United States, they've relaxed it because they want the game to be more exciting because that draws in more the casual fan. So somebody like us who are hardcore fans, we're going to watch it no matter what. We'll watch the Jordan era, the 80 to 89 games, and we'll watch it when it's 130 to 129. But the casual fan only wants to see when it's a whole bunch of points because that's more exciting. So in the NBA, and a lot of people don't notice, the NBA is a capitalistic league. It's about the money. This is why the TV contracts are so big and the player contracts are so big. Overseas, no, there are teams overseas that operate at a loss or only break even every year, even to this very day, mm. because they don't operate necessarily based on how do we maximize dollars. They operate out of love for the country or love for the town that they're from. And that's why the fan bases are a little bit different. You see fans fighting over you know, which team they represent before the games and in the stands. You don't see that happening in the NBA. If they're fighting, they're fighting because somebody said something that they didn't like, but not because I like the Nuggets and you like the Knicks. That's not why they're fighting. But overseas, <laughs> they do that because those owners, again, they'll operate at a loss or even just break even because it's not all about the dollar. Here in America, we're a capitalistic society. It's all about the dollar. So they do things to drive attention and eyeballs, and we're in an attention economy. So whatever draws eyeballs, people will do it. And that's a, a bigger conversation about society as a whole. But that's another one of the differences that is only in the United States. That's not happening in other countries. Yeah. And these kids coming over from overseas, I mean, they can play. Mm -hmm. And that's so wild because we we're talking about the Jordan era. I remember when they went to Barcelona for the Olympics. And I remember being over there for a tournament at one point. And okay. it was these kids from Croatia. And they were in the middle of a civil war. And all they could talk about was Jordan and Barkley and Magic Johnson. And that was their heroes. And there was a few player, Tony Kukoc was coming over, right? Those things were starting to happen. But now the game is just, there's so many kids coming from overseas and these kids can play. And like you said, to your mm -hmm. point, 
they can do it all. Mm. They have the fundamentals down. They have the Eurostep. They have all these things, right? Right. And so it's interesting where that game goes. And you played, you know, you played ball here and you played overseas. And so you saw it maybe at a very early stage as to what was happening. But the NBA always wanted to go global and they've gone global because these kids are coming over and they're ready to play and they're ready to get drafted and they're ready to start and they're ready to be MVPs of the league. I mean, that's that 20 years ago, that wasn't happening. And that game has grown. Yeah, that was uh, David Stern's vision was to make the game worldwide. So between Michael Jordan and the Dream Team and TV and Internet, that combination of four things pretty much did it. Yeah. 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 That's amazing, man. Who's your audience? Who should be watching your videos? And also, who are you working like closely with like people like one on one or in groups? Like, Mm -hmm. who do you want to hear this type of thing? Who do you want to be paying attention to what you're doing? Well, my main audience nowadays, mostly I work with entrepreneurs and professionals, either professionals who are transitioning from traditional work into entrepreneurship or entrepreneurs who are there, usually somewhere in a comfortable six-figure level in their business, and they're just trying to get to the next level, trying to make more money. Usually that's what entrepreneurs want, is that everybody's trying to make money, especially in yeah. America. And as far as the athletes, I still get athletes who come across my basketball stuff, uh, material that I made back then, and every once in a while I still talk about a sports issue, but more speaking about it. I'm not on the court doing dribbling drills anymore. Yeah. I leave that to the, it's a new generation of guys doing that. Yeah. Overall, I'll still talk about any subject. You know, that's the thing that I think people like about me is that I can talk about any subject. I'm versatile. And being that I you know have my own platform, I don't have to hold my tongue on anything. So I can talk about anything from any angle. And I think people like that. And that I can be kind of fair and objective about it. Even if people disagree with me, they can still respect my angle. Yeah, no, I think so. I think that's what the internet's given us is if you have an interest in gardening, if you have an interest in travel or basketball or what have you, like you can talk about it. And then that chances are, it's like, well, what do you do? Well, it's like, this is maybe what I've done. This is a project I'm working on, but I do a lot of things. Like you could be mm. a parent, you could be running this business and be this part of this foundation, writing a book. And so I think that's fascinating that you could talk about all these different topics. Like you clearly show on your channels and like you showed in this conversation today. But Dre, man, this was great. Where can people find you, where they can learn more about you, where they can check out your podcast and all that? Sure. So best place to find me online for social media is probably Instagram is my most active because I use the stories all day. So my Instagram is just my name, at Dre Baldwin. Send out a free daily motivation text message every single day for free. So anybody wants to get that text, just text me. My number is 305-384-6894. I'm sure we'll put that in the show notes and all that. And the best place to work with me directly is at Work On Your Game University. I got one program. People always ask me, you got different programs. And I got one program. You want to work with me? WorkOnYourGameUniversity.com. That's a pretty simple website. and tell you exactly what steps you need to take to work with me. So those are the best places. That's good stuff, Trey. Man, I've enjoyed this so much. I really appreciate, appreciate your time and just, man, all of it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your platform for the opportunity. In case you haven't noticed, we love podcasts. In fact, we love building podcasts, everything from development to production. Because of all that, we're building a -a one-of-a-kind podcast network. If you have a podcast or looking to launch a new podcast, then we should talk. You can message me on Twitter at Eric underscore Kaz or hit us up any way that works for you. Let's talk about your podcast joining this one-of-a-kind podcast network.